Thank you, Matt. Well, it is a joy to welcome you this morning, and I too want to express my uh, thanks for uh, uh, mothers who are here this morning, and uh, I wish you a very happy Mother's Day. I noticed, though, by the way, that uh, y'all were a little later coming in than normal. I have a theory about that. I suspect that's probably because the dads were in charge this morning. (laughs) Yep, mm -hmm, that's what I figured. Well, in honor of Mother's Day, we're going to return to our study of the Gospel of Mark, It's a most appropriate text since it talks about a guy running around naked and screaming, something every mother can relate to. (laughs) We remember the time was early in Jesus' ministry. He had just called the twelve to himself and begun to teach them the truths of the kingdom of God. They knew that he was different from the very beginning. When he called them, something in him compelled them to obey, even though it didn't really make sense. I mean, he was a, he was a carpenter turned itinerant preacher, yet when he called, they left all that they had, all that they were, to follow him. Began to observe as he, headed, as he healed those who were sick, diseased, paralyzed, demon-possessed. It didn't, it didn't matter. He seemed to have power over everything that plagued humanity, and, and when he spoke, he spoke Uh, as one with authority, being only this Galilean carpenter. He frequently spoke to the multitudes in in parables, hiding his meaning from those who would hear, yet later explaining the parables to his disciples in, in private. It seemed every time he opened his mouth, they were in awe at his words. While the teachers of the law were accusing him of being empowered by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, and while his own family uh, thought him out of his mind, the disciples were beginning to understand that he was different. After one particularly busy day in Galilee, when he had shared a variety of memorable parables, he said, let's go over to the other side. The other side was the other side, the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It had been a rather busy time. Jesus well, I suppose he needed some, some rest away from the crowds that constantly followed him and were seeking him to meet their needs. But, but I suggest that there was a spiritual purpose for the trip as well, both in the journey and, and upon their arrival. So they, they were already in the boat. Jesus had been teaching fr- from the boat. So they just take off from there along with a few other boats making their way across the sea. Little did the disciples know they were in for yet another adventure they had never before experienced. We pick up the story. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but just to lay the context, we pick up the story in Mark chapter 4, verses 37 and following. Look at that with me. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boats so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that We are perishing. And he he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. (laughs) And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. This was absolutely amazing. Not only were the disciples now convinced that Jesus was different, they were beginning to realize that he was something other. I mean, who could do this? 
Some of the disciples were experienced fishermen. They had seen storms on the sea before, but, but this one was of such great intensity that they feared for their lives. The words here indicate a, a storm of hurricane proportions as the wind swept violently down the narrow mountain valleys like a funnel, drawing the storm down with fierce suddenness. The, the, the calm sea, once calm sea, was at once rough as the boat was tossed about in the, in, in the white crests of foaming waves. No mention is made of the other boats. They either turned back or perhaps went down. And, and while the disciples feared for their lives, <laughs> can you believe it? Jesus lay exhausted asleep in the back of the boat. And this is the only reference in the Gospels. I noted this a couple of weeks ago to Jesus sleeping. No doubt he slept as a man, but never before when his disciples needed him. Uh, while he had demonstrated his power, you see, over disease and sickness, it would seem that this whole event was prearranged to, to display his power over yet another realm, that of nature. So with wave after wave coming over the side of the boat. It, it appeared that they were in the process of seek, sinking, and so they awakened uh, Jesus. I find it interesting that the tossing of the boat, the howling of the storm, the crashing of the waves did not awaken him. You, you see, since he was something other, he was in complete control of the situation. And, and while the elements did not awaken him, the cries of those who needed him did, because he always hears the cries of his own, always, no matter what storm you're facing. And, and so they cried out to him, teacher, don't you, don't you care that we're fairies? Are you kidding me? If, if, if only they knew to whom they spoke. They had the Lord of the wind and the waves right in the boat with them. It, it didn't matter that he was asleep. The story goes on to tell us that he got up, rebuked the wind, and the, said to the waves, hush, be, be still. And immediately the, the wind died down. It was com completely calm. Now, you need to understand the tense of the verb uh, suggests an immediate response. It could not be mistaken that the winds and the waves obeyed his voice. I mean, neither the disciples thought, nor should we think that the storm, you know, just started to subside, and after a little while there was calm as is normal after every storm. I mean, Jesus spoke, and there was an immediate, immediate peacefulness. And I suggested a couple of weeks ago that He still has the ability to speak and bring peace in the midst of your storm, whatever it may be. As a result, the disciples were terrified. Literally, they feared a great fear. I mean, they had been afraid of the storm outside the boat, but now they were terrified of this one inside the boat who could speak and the elements obey. Yeah, they were beginning to realize that he was something other. And so, so they asked this question, who is this? In the same account in Matthew, the question is, is asked this way, what kind of man is this? And that's the question before us today. I want to ask you, do you know what kind of man this is? Do, do you know what he is able to do? You see, my desire this week and, and next, as we take two weeks to finish the story, is to ask and answer some rather basic questions about this Galilean carpenter. It's my concern first that there may be, well, there may be some of you here who do not know Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And and what He came to do for you. Secondly, I'm concerned there are those of us who know Jesus, but we've forgotten. 
what he's able to do for us. And we've forgotten as a consequence what he expects of us. In the next, this week and next couple of weeks, I hope to, well, I hope to reaffirm his demands on our lives because he left some very specific instructions. But the question for the morning is this, who, who is this Jesus? I mean, does the, does the text before us tell us? They ask the question. I mean, those who knew him, who, who spent time with him, had a fearful respect for who he was and, and what he was able to do. I mean, this guy's incredible. This morning, I, wanna, I want us to go away with a renewed sense of awe. I, I want us to, to know Jesus a, a little better, and as such, perhaps we could reverence him a bit more. We're going to do that by looking at the next story in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 13 verses today. The outline, let me give that to you before we read the text. We'll take it a section at a time. The outline goes, the the background, the battle, and the Bay of Pigs, or if you prefer the setting, the standoff and the swine flu. Um, Let's start with uh, the the, the background in in verses 1 to 5. It says, "They, they, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he, that is Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a, 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 a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles, probably around his feet is what that's talking about, and, and chains around his hands. And, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and, and no one was strong enough to subdue him constantly, night and day. It's kind of like Mother's Day. He was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. As we begin this morning, let me remind you of the critically important context of the Gospel of Mark. Mark's story of Jesus, is, we found, is rather action-oriented. In fact, this particular story is twice as long as, as the other stories and recounts more details. He, he, Mark actually recounts little of Jesus' extended teaching, but rather the scenes shift rapidly from story to story. Jesus is constantly on the move, healing and exercising demons and confronting opponents, instructing disciples. You see, Mark wants to present a, it's, it's called a Christology, that is who Jesus is, in which we see Jesus and His miracle working power in the first eight chapters, and, and then laid alongside that in the next eight chapters that, that finish the book, we see this powerful Jesus suffering and, and dying. Mark wants us readers to understand that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Son of God, more than that, he's especially the suffering Son of God. Moreover, he, believers are expected then as a result to be followers of Jesus. Mark wants to help us understand who Jesus is and what true discipleship, what, what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. That's the context this morning as we continue our study. I want you to remember, based on the events of the previous evening, the disciples were somewhat terrified of who Jesus was. I mean, who is this? And, and terrified of what he could do. I mean, he had exercised his power over the forces of, of nature. You'd be a little nervous, too, if you observed someone commanding a Kansas tornado to lay at his feet. It certainly beats, you know, closing your eyes, clicking your heels together and saying there's no place like home. Uh, amazing, but... We'll, we'll see that there is now a large company, and it is a rather large company of demons also laying down at the feet of Jesus. He had healed others of demon possession 
twice already in this book, not to mention the, the summaries that Mark gives of his exorcism ministry, but, but none are as spectacular as this. I think I remember this correctly. This is the longest account of an exorcism in all the Gospels. I mean, we've seen his power over nature. Now we're going to see his power over the forces of evil, no matter how big those forces are. This whole section seems to be exalting Jesus and his power, what we call omnipotence, setting him apart as not just something different, but something other. In fact, chapter 5 shows his power over demons, his power over disease, and his power ultimately over death. Who can do that? What kind of man is this? text says that they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. That is a region that lay in the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Lots of discussion about this because different texts have different words there. Uh, one is Gadara. It was one of the cities in that region called the Decapolis. So, so in Matthew's account of this event, he calls it the region of the Gadarenes. No big problem there. You can see it's about the same area. Upon arriving, probably in the middle of the night or early uh, in the next morning since they had left the evening before, we find a man with an unclean or, or an evil spirit coming from the tombs to, to meet them. Now, those of you familiar with the other gospel narratives know that, that Matthew records two demon-possessed men. Let me just deal with that very quickly. It's not that we have a, a problem or a discrepancy. More likely, one was more violent and, and, and made a bigger impression on Peter, who then relayed the story to John Mark, who, who wrote it down. But it's a man with an unclean spirit. This whole story is filled with uncleanness. I mean, there's an unclean spirit, a demon-possessed man who's living among the tombs. I mean, there are dead people and pigs running around everywhere. This would have been horrifying to any good Jew. But notice, Jesus wades into the uncleanness of life to provide cleansing through healing and forgiveness. He still does that. We're told this man lived among the tombs. At this time, the tombs were burial places made, in, uh, made up in natural caves or perhaps in, in, in caves carved out of the limestone rock. There would have been cells or, or shelves along the sides of the, uh, of, uh, of the cave that would have uh, held the dead bodies, much like a mausoleum today. I mean, if you could stand the stench and uncleanness, if you weren't bothered by dead bodies, it was actually a great place to live. The, the tombs were usually a solitary place, uh, found in a solitary place, away from the traffic and the, and the life of the surrounding towns. Now, somewhat reminiscent of the $6 million man, this guy was somehow able, under the influence of demons, to break these chains that bound him. And now keep in mind, we're not talking about high-grade iron or, or steel. And the word torn apart there carries with the, the idea of violently rubbing the chains together and, until they broke. No one could bind him anymore indicates that his condition had become increasingly worse. So his Herculean strength rendered any attempts to subdue him fruitless. Mark is, is, is making a point. He's trying to get us to understand something. Three times he says, this guy is really strong. No one could bind him. Chains, he tore chains apart. No one was strong enough to subdue him. This was a strong man. Sounds a little familiar. Unable to be contained by natural means. That's the point. This, by the way, was the medical treatment of the day for insanity or possession. Chained them. This just 
Let's just chain them to curb their violence. Psychology today, reading this particular text, would perhaps diagnose this guy as a depressive psychotic. But then, as with many psychological practices today, all attempts to heal this man had proven ineffective. And we are also, by the way, going to find out he was not psychotic. He was demon-possessed. Now, this is important. This is incredibly important. I'm not suggesting that, that, that people who are, have mental illness today are necessarily demon-possessed. I would not say that. And I do believe in such a thing as mental illness today. But nor should we dismiss everything as mental illness. There is such a thing as demon Possession. You see, there are two extremes that we need to avoid regarding demons. One is that they, that, that they don't exist, right? They, they, come on, we just read these and understand now that's just mental illness. And the other extreme is that, to believe that they exist under every rock. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to his now famous The Screwtape letter, Letters, writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. They don't, they're not real. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, both extremes. Inhale a materialist, one who denies it, and a magician, one who sees them under every walk. He, they, give both, uh, they view both with the same delight. We must not dismiss the idea of demonic activity, nor must we be overly concerned because greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. Back to the text, verse 5 tells us that night and day among the tombs and in the mountains he would scream and gash himself with stones. I want you to notice the self-destructive nature of demonic possession. Self-destructive nature. We're going to see that again when they go to inhabit some pigs. Now, the word screaming there speaks of inarticulate shrieks. The word is used, for example, of the bawling of wild pigs and the loud croaking of, of frogs. Uh, this guy would yell at the top of his lungs, screaming, not really saying anything, uh, I suppose with what we would call blood-curdling screams, kind of eerie. The text says, additionally, he cut himself with stones. You can only imagine what this guy, what this man looked like after years of cutting up his body, he was probably quite disfigured, covered with scars. Luke records the fact that he was naked as well. So basically what we have here is a new dude in a rude mood. <laughs> so, so, get this, so get this scene firmly embedded in your minds. When you think of when you think of horror flicks, if you like to watch those demonic things, what are some of the things that usually come to mind? Well, among them, no doubt, are cemeteries at night, since they left in the evening, the other side of the sea in the evening, it was probably now in the middle of the night, perhaps early in the morning. So what we have here is a genuine horror story. Look at it, a demon-possessed man that no one was strong enough to do anything about, running around nude, screaming at the top of his lungs, and living in a cemetery. Matthew records the additional fact that this man would not even allow people to pass that way, which explains why he ran up to Jesus and his party. Little did the, these demons know that they were about to face their worst nightmare. Imagine the disciples' impression of the event. 
<laughs> they had already had a rather draining night, to say the least. And now they were getting, as they were getting out of the boat, this great, crazy, demon-possessed, naked, disfigured man comes streaking up to them, pun intended, screaming the whole way. They, they, they are probably scared to death, trying to decide, is it better to jump back into the boat and face another boat ride or face this guy? Everybody is on edge. The emotions running high. Everyone is terrified. Everyone except Jesus, who is in complete control of the situation because he is something other. It brings us to our second point, the battle, which we're going to see is really not much of a battle at all. Look at it with me. Chapter 5, verses 6 to 10 say this. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. <laughs> and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, had been saying to him as he's running up, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And, and so Jesus was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. This man, seeing Jesus and his disciples landing on the shore. Now, at this point, I don't think he understands who, who is landing on the shore. He just sees some, uh, a group of men in a boat getting out, entering his particular, their particular territory. So he runs over probably to harass them. However, upon arriving... <laughs> Jesus, knowing all about the man's problem, commands the unclean spirit to come out. At this, the evil spirit recognized who Jesus was, recognizes they're in trouble, and fall down on their collective knees, crying out for mercy. Now, this falling on their knees is the word that is often translated worship. This was not an act of worship, but it was an act of respect paid to a superior being, a superior being indeed because he was something other. This brings me back to the question of the morning. Uh, who is this Jesus? You see, even the demons, as evil as they are, they know who Jesus is. James 2 says that they believe there is one God, and they have enough sense to shudder at the thought of him. Today, uh, people not only refuse to shudder at the thought of him, many refuse to even accept his existence, discount him as mere legend. Or they have perverted God to be a God that, that they can stomach. Read Romans chapter 1. And when, when the disciples were beginning to realize who Jesus was, they feared a great fear. When the demons came into his presence, they fell on their knees in front of him. You see, this is the proper response to Jesus, not a dismissive, flippant disregard. Without an introduction, they introduce him to us. They answered the disciples' question from the night before. Who is this? And they answered the question, this is the Son of the Most High God. That's the answer. That's who he is. This, uh, that he was the son of God, asserts his identity of essence with God. That's what I mean by not only was he something different, he was something other. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. That he was the son of the most high God distinguishes the true God from other false gods. Very interesting, as I was doing some reading about this this week, one commentator pointed out, it doesn't matter which culture you go to, even polytheistic cultures, they seem to have running around in their mind this idea that there is a supreme God. 
this God. He's the son you see of the most high God. No other gods but this God. No other Jesus. No other Savior. It's interesting. The demon serving one who wanted to exalt himself above God is not confused as to who God is. It's both exciting and comforting to know that we serve a God who is over all, even the forces of evil itself, no matter how big the force is. This legion of demons falls at the feet of Jesus, and their inarticulate shrieks become pleas for mercy. Notice the singular. He says, I implore you by God, do not torment me at this point who is speaking likely the demon. There must have been a spokesman. When he says, I implore you by God, he is attempting to put Jesus under oath. What do I mean? In short, he was scared, and he appealed to a source that was at least equal to Jesus, that being God. Notice he did not appeal to Satan. Not equal to. Not much of a battle. So if you compare this story with the parallel passages in Matthew 8 and Luke 8, you'll find that they were begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss, the place of punishment, eternal punishment before their time, a place of eternal confinement and suffering for evil spirits. Read Revelation 20. You see, we understand that to this they are destined. They were fearing the final judgment was about to come upon them early. Don't, don't send us before our time. And they begin negotiating. At this, Jesus asked the demon his name. Uh, why would he do so? A lot of speculation and guess work about this. Some have suggested that the ancient and, by the way, current practice of discerning the demon's name was necessary for a successful exorcism. Before he could drive him out, Jesus needed to know who he was dealing with. I find it difficult to believe that Jesus did not know who he was dealing with. And even if he didn't know the demon's name in his humanity, I find it difficult this would keep him from exorcising the demon or demons. It didn't stop him in all the other exorcisms. Others have, I think, rightly suggested that this demon was identified not for Jesus' benefit, but for ours, to show the magnitude of the possession and the magnitude of the power of this miracle that Jesus is about to perform. This is no small task, because the demon's name was Legion, for he was many. A Roman legion consisted of over 6,000 men. We're going to find that there are 2,000 pigs that rushed into the sea after being possessed by these demons. Exactly how many demons there were, we don't know, but we do know this, they were many. In fact, by this time in Jewish history, uh, to the Jewish mind, a legion signified um, vast numbers, complex organization, invincible strength, no one could bind him, and relentless oppression. That sounds familiar. We do know it was not uncommon for a person to be possessed by more than one demon. And in fact, that those demons could be counted. For example, in Luke chapter 8, we find that Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons. At any rate, having given their name, they beg again and again not to be sent out of the area. Uh, Maybe this was their assigned territory. Some suggest that. Others suggest they didn't want to become disembodied spirits. They didn't want to be sent to the abyss before their time, whichever, uh, which leads to our third point, the Bay of Pigs. Look at verses 11 to 13. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, saying, 
send us into the swine so that we may enter them. I don't want to be disembodied. And so Jesus gave them permission. I find that interesting. And, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Again, get the picture here. We have 2,000 pigs feeding along the Sea of Galilee. This region, again, is the area of the Decapolis, largely inhabited by Gentiles who no doubt own these pigs. The next thing you see, however, is 2,000 pigs rushing headlong into the sea, drowning themselves. <laughs> you would be amazed at the amount of discussion that goes on in my commentaries about the morality of sending demons into pigs. The PETA people would have a heyday. This was not a concern to the biblical authors. The point is this, and here's what I want you to get. One human was worth more than 2,000 pigs. So I'll eat my bacon and enjoy it. We must understand the power involved here. First, we have a man who had been possessed by demons for some time. No one was able to subdue the man, not even with chains. Along comes Jesus, and at the spoken word, they flee the man. It's also important to see that the demons realized that they were fully at the control of Jesus. Notice they asked permission, can we please go into the pigs? A number of questions that we could ask here, which we don't have Time to answer questions like, why did the pigs drown themselves? Where did the demons go after the pigs drowned? Or did Jesus know what would happen to the pigs? He probably didn't. Maybe we'll look at some of those next week. All of this brings us to our conclusion. You may be going, ah, neat story, so what? What does all this mean? And you may be thinking things like, I'd believe this Christianity stuff if I could see something like that. That's pretty amazing. Or, I, I'm a Christian, but it sure would be nice to have walked with Jesus uh, to see that kind of miracle. I think I'd be stronger in my faith. Bear with me as I draw some analogies between this historical act of grace and the act of grace God performs today every time He converts the soul of a dead sinner. First, I want to say this gently. If you do not know who Jesus is, if you have never committed your life to Him, asking Him to forgive you of your sin and become your Lord, you too are under the influence of the forces of evil. You are chained. You are a slave to sin. And Jesus actually said in John chapter 8 that you are of your father, the devil. Because you do the things that He does when you sin in your bondage. Not only that, second, Ephesians 2 tells us that you, like this man, hang around dead people. In fact, you are one of those dead people. You are dead in trespasses and sin, and so is everyone else that has not been made alive in Christ. Third, you also, like this man, are self-destructive. I want you to understand, no matter how good you think you may be, every evil act you perform, like scars, are permanent records making you guilty before God. Fourth, you, like this 
demon-possessed guy have found there is nothing you or, frankly, anybody else can do about your condition. You have maybe tried to curb your violence. You have maybe tried to curb your, your evil, but you have been unsuccessful. I know this because you're dead in trespasses and sin. Modern psychology, self-improvement, I'm okay, you're okay programs can do nothing to fill the void in your heart and remove your sin, your pollution, and your guilt, which means finally, you too, you too have to fall at the feet of Jesus, recognizing who he is, that he is indeed the son of the most high God, and plead with him for forgiveness, for release. This is where the analogy breaks down. The demons did not find deliverance, but the man did. We'll we'll see that next week as he understands who Jesus is and what he came to do. But my question for you this morning is this. Do you know Jesus in this way? Again, I suppose you can dismiss the story of Legion as mere legend. But there are far too many stories of his amazing, miraculous power. And so, do you know the price that he paid by dying on a cross to free you from your bondage to sin, to, to, to make you alive through his work on the cross? and His resurrection. If you don't, you can. It is simply a matter of confessing your sin, bowing at the feet of Jesus as your Lord, seeking His forgiveness through death, through His death, burial, and resurrection. It's simply a matter of trusting Jesus for your salvation. I invite you to do that today. For the rest of us, I suppose most of us here, uh, we already know Jesus as Lord. My purpose is to impress you. <laughs> Once again, with Jesus. You see, I want you to walk away today with a renewed sense of awe for who He is and what He did in your life when He freed you. It's amazing. Stand for prayer.